We're continuing our series of messages out of the book of Philippians this morning. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you've got a Bible that's stamped with the words Creston Christian Reformed Church on the front, uh, it's on page 1229, Philippians chapter 1. Um, so every week in this church, we have, uh, we have a chance for people to share one of two things. Uh, we did it again this morning. Uh, people pass in their prayer request cards, uh, or people raise their hand, they get the mic, and they share a God story. And uh, I've noticed, this is not universally true, but I've noticed that generally, uh, bad things become prayer requests, and, and good things become God stories. So, <clears throat> if you lose your job, it's a bad thing. It's, it's a prayer card, it's a prayer request. Um, but if you're reunited with an old friend, it's, it's a good thing, it's, it's a God story. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of you shared a God story, a God story about a bad thing. Uh, Julie shared about a season in her life that was really painful. It was really difficult, it was confusing, it was frustrating. It was this season that had prayer requests written all over it. But she was sitting in her pew two weeks ago. This is seven years after that season. And she said that as awful as that time was, she realizes now that God was actually working, even then, even in like that really bad time, that time of pain and struggle, that time was itself a God story. And I think what Julie noticed is really important for Christians. Because I think it points to a really important truth about the Christian life. Which is that God is not only working in your life, He's not only present in your life when things are going well. Okay. Um, in other words, God's stories should not only be about pay raises uh, or new jobs or wedding engagements. In fact, I would go even as far as to say this. I bet that for most of us, the most important God stories in our lives will probably hinge not on a moment when everything worked out really nicely. But rather, I'm going to bet that for most of us, the most important God stories of our lives probably hinge on a moment when things seemed to be falling apart. And you see this from Paul in our passage today. So this is chapter 1, verse 12 of Philippians. And he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And you've got to remember what has happened to Paul. He's, he's been locked up. He's been imprisoned for his faith. But he says in verse 13, he says, As a result of what has happened to me, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. 
You see what Paul's doing here? He's making the same kind of observation that Julie made. Which is this, just because things look bad doesn't mean God is done. It doesn't mean God has checked out. It doesn't mean God's not involved. It does not mean you are on your own. You know, Paul is literally in chains. I, I was, uh, you know, we've been talking about Paul in prison the last few weeks. Uh, but I was reading this week that uh, actually a lot of scholars think that he was probably not just in a prison cell, but actually literally chained to a prison guard all the time. Uh, this is pretty common in the Roman world. So when you're sleeping, you're chained to a guard. When, when you're going to the bathroom, you're chained to a guard. When you're eating, you're chained to a guard. And it's kind of hard to overstate how bad that would be. <laughs> right? I mean, for anybody. But especially for Paul. Paul is probably like the most influential religious teacher in world history. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, he's like this key person who guided this tiny Jesus movement into the global church. I mean, his achievements like, are unmatched, basically. Um, but here he is. He's not planting churches. Uh, he's not like traveling the world. He's not spreading the movement. He is stuck in prison. He is chained to a Roman guard. And yet somehow Paul realizes... There's a God story here. He's like, you know, if it weren't for this awful situation, I'd never have had the chance to witness to these guards. I mean, think about it. Every day in shifts, I imagine, right, you got three, four, five different Roman guards who are uh, literally a captive audience uh, chained to the best preacher in world history. Just because things look like they're falling apart, doesn't mean God's not working. Now, I'm not saying it's like equivalent. I'm not saying like the good outweighs the bad. Um, I think sometimes the good doesn't outweigh the bad. But see, people have this idea that like when you're a good Christian, then like all these good things are going to happen to you. But Paul says, you know what? I've actually been a pretty good Christian. Um, but sometimes even when you're a good, th- good Christian, bad things happen to you. But God seems to be working even through those bad things. In fact, I think Paul would say that God seems to work especially well through the bad things. You know, if you were to ask around uh, people in this church, uh, ask somebody in the church, uh, when were the times or the seasons when your faith grew or matured or deepened the most. And I will bet a lot of people in this church would point to a season not of uh, success, but to a season of struggle. Uh, It was a season of struggle that was the season of deepest growth. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this in a lot of situations. But now in Philippians, Paul is going to kind of push this to its limit. So go down to verse 19. We're going to cover the intervening verses next week, um, but I want to jump down to verse 19. Uh, Paul is starting to think about uh, like what, like what's next for him. So he knows that he's chained up, but like what's going to happen next? And he's got a few options. So um, 
I guess he could just sort of stay chained up for a long time, for years and years and years, kind of in legal limbo, just waiting. Uh, he could be freed. That would be pretty great. You know, he could go do his church planting thing, you know, kind of live out this great potential he has. Um, or he could be executed by the Romans, which actually ultimately is what's going to happen to him. So those are his options, and this is what he says about his options. Verse 19. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So what he's saying is his imprisonment is not wasted. Uh, Because God is present with him by God's Holy Spirit, and because the church is praying... Like, good stuff is happening. It's working towards his deliverance. So the, the Greek word there is, is sometimes translated salvation. It has this idea of sanctification. Like, um, because of what's happening, because the Holy Spirit is present, because people are praying, this bad situation is being used to make Paul more like Jesus. In verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's saying, whatever happens, whether it's good or like seriously bad, I only hope that I will have the courage to live my life for Jesus. Uh, to live a life that, that points to God. And then Paul makes one of the most extraordinary claims really in religious history. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose I do not know? I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. You get what he's saying there. He's saying he desires to die. He desires to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But he says, it is more necessary for you that I remain in my body. In other words, uh, it looks like I've still got work to do, so I'm going to stick around. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, I really want to focus in on verse 21. I think verse 21 is the ballgame. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what Paul means when he says to live is Christ is to say that what gives his life meaning what makes his life matter, Uh, the most important part of his identity, what makes Paul, Paul, is Jesus. It is his faith that Jesus has saved him and that Jesus is with him. And he knows that this is true because even in prison, he's been reminded, right? Verse 19 He's been reminded that God is powerful and that God is present even in his struggle. And so it is that powerful and present God that Paul clings to. Now you realize, of course, that a guy like Paul, 
has a lot of options of where to sort of draw his identity from. He was very successful. Like, uh, in his community, he was a rising star. Uh, people, people in his community knew that he was going places. Um, as, a, as, a ch- as a pastor, like, his churches grew. They multiplied. They spread. I mean, I know he deals with a lot of problems in his church, but if you take kind of the bigger picture, like, the guy has a golden touch. Um, and yet, he doesn't find his identity in his success. He's also highly educated. So he's, he's widely respected. He went to what would sort of be like the, the Ivy League of, of Jewish schools to study. Um, top of his class. But, but for Paul, uh, that's not what makes him who he is either. Paul finds his identity in Christ. That Christ has saved him and that Christ is with him. And, and here's the thing about what happens when you put your identity in Christ. So, a counterexample. If you put your identity in your success, for example, um, it'll be taken away. So, you might be, I know some of you are kind of a big deal in your circles. You might be a hot shot at your job. Um, you're a player. People want to be around you. People want to talk to you. Um, but I guarantee that at some point, some ambitious young kid is going to come along and he's going to have better ideas than you and he's going to work harder than you uh, and he's going to do it better than you and people are not going to come to you for advice or want to be around you. They're going to want to be around him or her. Jobs are phased out. Businesses fail. If you find your identity in your success, I mean, it might be a fun ride while it lasts, but it will not last. Nobody's success lasts forever. This is Paul's kind of secret sauce. Um, Paul put his identity, he put the source of the meaning in his life in the one thing that is more certain than anything else in all of creation. The one thing that not even like the great and mighty Roman Empire could take away from him. Not uh, Roman courts, not Roman guards, not even... Roman executions. You see, if verse 23 is true, look at verse 23. This is, this is actually, I think, the, it's the clearest description of what happens to Christians after we die. Uh, we go to be with Jesus, which is good, it says. Uh, where we spend eternity, like after Jesus returns, final judgment, new heavens and new earth, that's kind of a different subject. But, where we, spend, uh, where we go when we die is we go to be with Jesus. And if that's true, if it's true that to die is gain, if it's true that it is better by far to depart to be with Jesus, I mean, just let that sink in for a minute, it's better by far to depart to be with Jesus. If death is not something to be feared, but really just a transition to another way of being in Jesus' presence, I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, suddenly death uh, doesn't change that much for Christians. I mean, what gave Paul meaning in his life was that Jesus saved him and that Jesus was with him. Right? Well, for every Christian, that's true in our lifetimes. Jesus saves us, he's with us. That's true for us right now. But it is also just as true for us after we die. We're with Jesus and he saves us. 
And if that's true, I really think it just changes everything. Um, I, was, I was reading a book last week uh, by the, the Archbishop, the Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia. And he shares the story of these uh, Coptic Christians. Uh, you might remember this. Uh, in 2015, there were 21 of these Coptic Christians who were uh, beheaded by ISIS in Libya. There was, like, the video was all over the internet. And on the video, um, some of these men, uh, before they were executed, gave a testimony to Lord Jesus Christ. And it turns out that after the video came out, um, one of the brothers of one of the guys who was murdered, actually he had two brothers who were killed, um, the, the brother uh, came out and he publicly thanked ISIS uh, for not editing the video and, and cutting the testimony out at the end. He said it had strengthened his own faith uh, to hear it. And he said that in their village, people were proud that so many from their church had been willing to die for their faith. And then the brother said this, which really blows me away. He said this. He said, uh, these events only make us stronger in our faith because the Bible tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us. How in the world can someone say something like that? How can someone be thankful? How can someone talk about loving their enemies and blessing their enemies when their enemies are not like made up? Like the enemy just killed your brothers. What reality is this brother living in? We told the story a couple months ago about this uh, pastor in Honduras, uh, this Reverend Machado, whose car was shot up uh, with bullets intended to kill him uh, because of the work that he was doing to reform the police in Honduras. And they said, listen, we're going to kill you if you keep doing this. And they filled his car with bullets. And guess what? He kept doing it. He kept working. I mean, how is this possible? What, what reality are these guys living in? To live with that kind of courage. To love your enemies. To, to bless those who curse you. To profess your faith. To seek justice. How is it possible to do these things even in the face of death? Well, it's possible if if death is no longer the worst thing that can happen to you. It's possible if even death cannot take away what truly gives your life meaning. You know, these Coptic Christians, this Reverend Machado, they find their identity in Christ. A Christ who saved them and a Christ who is with them and not even death. They know that not even death can separate them from the love of that Christ. You know, a lot of people think that the Christian faith would be more compelling if we emphasized how following God leads to blessing. Okay? So they say, you know, don't be so negative, keep it positive. You know, if you put your faith in Jesus, good things will happen to you. Have a happier family, 
get a pay raise. It's this prosperity gospel. It's so popular. But see, (laughs) Paul's life reminds us that God did not go to all the trouble of sending Jesus into the world just so that you could get a bigger house or, or happier kids. I mean, that might happen, and I guess it'd be fine. But he sent Jesus so that you could be a part of a whole different kind of reality. We sometimes call that reality the kingdom of God. And it's this reality where everything's backwards. Where the last are first and where the poor are blessed and where the weak are lifted up and where sinners are forgiven and where death has lost its sting. And here is a tested truth of the Christian faith. That reality, okay, that the kingdom of God is often easiest to see. God often does His best work, not in our prosperity, but in our adversity. Our faith is deeper. Our love shines brighter in hard times than good. In 2010, uh, the Archbishop of Mosul, you remember Mosul in Iraq? Uh, Wikipedia says that since, uh, since 2010, 12,000 people have been killed in Mosul, and about a million people have fled the city. That Mosul. In 2010, the, uh, the Archbishop of Mosul uh, was gruesomely murdered. So they called a new Archbishop. I, I try to imagine that phone call. I, I remember when I was in seminary, the big joke was that uh, uh, none of us wanted to be called to be a pastor in Iowa. It's like, oh Lord, please don't call me to be a pastor in Iowa. Amol Shimon Nona received a call. They said, hey, can you be the new pastor in the middle of ISIS-controlled Iraq? And he said, yes. And the first day he arrived, Christians in his congregation were murdered. And so it was the whole time he served there. Well, Archbishop Nona wrote a letter. Not to his own church, but actually a letter to the the churches of the rest of the world. And in his letter he says this. He says, this suffering, living under constant threat of bullets and bombs, basically, this suffering deepens your sense of what it means to be a Christian. And then he said this, which I think is just, it blew my mind. He said, the greatest challenge in facing death because of your faith is to continue to know this faith in such a way as to live it constantly and fully. Let me say it again. The greatest challenge in facing death because of your faith is to continue to know this faith in such a way as to live it constantly and fully and fully. What he's saying is, the greatest challenge in facing persecution or suffering is not to just like withdraw and like hang in there and just like keep believing, but rather the greatest challenge is to live your faith constantly and fully. Not to withdraw from the world, but to step into it. Right? I mean, he's talking about loving his enemies, right? He's talking about 
loving and serving and proclaiming this gospel, even under threat, even into suffering, into struggle, into places and communities of need. He's saying where the need is greatest for the kingdom's light to shine, shine. Uh, Archbishop Nona said, my goal in all of this is to reinforce the fact that the Christian faith is not an abstraction. But the Christian faith is the means of discovering life's deepest meaning. When everything else is stripped away, there's Jesus. So dear friends of Jesus Christ, if God has saved you and God is with you, you have the secret sauce. <laughs> the deepest meaning of life, you've got it. And so you need not fear suffering or struggle because in suffering, God does some of his best work. And you need not fear death because not even that will be able to separate you from that God and His love. And so we can live sacrificially. We can live, live boldly. We can live in the reality of the kingdom of God with an undying hope. In Jesus' name, amen.